1: I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Visha Ratanapakti was an 84 year old Thai grandfather and San Francisco resident whose death helped galvanize a national movement to stop violence against Asian Americans.
2: Stop Asian hate!
1: You might have seen Ratanapakti's death in a disturbing video that went viral in 2021. He was taking a morning walk when he was violently pushed in an unprovoked attack. Earlier this month, San Francisco city officials renamed a street in Ratanapakti's honor. Buddhist monks chanted as Ratanapakti's daughter and supervisor Catherine Stephanie unveiled the new street sign at the edge of the Anza Vista neighborhood. San Francisco Asian American residents, who make up more than a third of the city's population, have been thinking a lot about public safety in recent years. A recent Chronicle poll found that while other racial groups are more likely to choose homelessness as San Francisco's biggest problem— Asian respondents chose safety and crime. Many have prescribed more policing and stronger prosecutions to solve the problem. In recent years, the political power of Asian Americans have been on display. There were new waves of activism, and many have added their voices in consequential decisions, including the recall of former district attorney Chesa Boudin. The public safety desires of Asian Americans in San Francisco have mostly been portrayed as pro-policing and pro-prosecution. Today on Fifth Emission, we're going to hear another perspective from two Bay Area Asian Americans who say that racial solidarity is key to achieving public safety. Last week, as part of its SF Next initiative, the Chronicle gathered almost 200 San Francisco residents to hold a day-long conference to discuss solutions to the city's biggest problems. As part of the program, I hosted a live discussion titled Public Safety and Race
2: in the Asian American Experience. One of the panelists was Sarah Wan. We believe that if there's no safety for one community, there's no safety for all communities. She's the director
1: of the Community Youth Center of San Francisco, or CYC, an organization that provides coordinated street outreach and crisis response services. As violence against Asian Americans escalated in the city, San Francisco called on CYC to provide direct victim services to its Asian residents. The second panelist was Eddie Zhang.
3: It's the ability to create healing opportunities for people so they can address the hurt that they have received as hurt people hurting other people.
1: He's the president and co-founder of the New Breath Foundation, which raises money for grassroots AAPI groups. He was a former juvenile lifer who served nearly 20 years in California's prison system. Zhang now shares his experience with the criminal legal system to advocate for restorative justice. Our discussion touched on many thorny topics, including the intensifying divisions between Asian and Black communities and why increased policing and even heartfelt gestures like renaming streets aren't enough. What deeper and long-term solutions should city officials be looking for? In order to keep Asian Americans safe, here's a recording of that conversation, which took place in front of a live audience. It's been edited for length and clarity. I directed the first question to Sarah Wan, the director of San Francisco's Community Youth Center. In response to the violence and fear that everyone's been feeling in the community, The city of San Francisco turned to your organization, the Community Youth Center of San Francisco, to help provide direct in-culture, in-language services to victims of crime. So sort of in that way, your organization is filling gaps in public safety for Asian Americans. Tell me about those gaps and how do they sort of factor into the public safety equation for
2: for Asian-Americans. Sure, I'm known for speak really fast, so I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think with CYC, I've been with CYC for over 27 years, and violence in our community really is not something really new. Um, that's something actually I've been working on since the w- day one. The only difference is there has been a lot of underreporting reporting case, and there's really no immediate attention into all this violence that happened in our community. I think in the, around the late 2090s, there's already community members or partners through the Asian Pacific Islander Council that we came together to start to have meetings with key community leaders as well as the local government department heads and also the law law enforcement agencies together to really hash out how we can really support better for the Asian community. But with the pandemic hit and really the surge of the anti-Asian hate incidents, we were asked to start a program Basically, we're really building the plane while it's flying, that we immediately pull our staff who are already doing like school outreach or they are actually doing case management, core bilingual and bicultural, and from San Francisco neighborhoods together to start a team, to start to do community outreach at high Asian concentration neighborhood or commercial corridors such as Chinatown. Tenderloin, Clement Street, Leland Avenue, or San Bruno Avenue, to really reach out to a community to let them know there are community resources out there. Whether they chose to report to the police or whatnot, there are resources for them. And we also immediately start this victim services where we're really bridging the gap or help them to navigate the system because a lot of time language is a major barrier. And also depending on which community they're coming from, they will have different perceptions about policing or law enforcement agencies. There may be many other barriers related to immigration status or other misperceptions that they do not want to report. So we really hope that by helping them navigate the system and being a liaison, they will find it less stressful and they could have more trust to really understanding what is going on. We also provide immediate mental health services that a lot of these victims or survivors, they're actually being traumatized and they do not know how to articulate their feeling or their fear. Many of the elders that we serve, they stop walking around their neighborhood, they stop going to groceries, they stop doing anything, basically just isolated from from the outside world. So we really, really hope that not only providing senior escort program through Self-Help for the Elderly, but also really provide them recovery or healing for the mental health service provider. So a lot of time our victim advocates actually have to go to their house and also to help them to turn on their tablets or computer or even their phone to help them to facilitate the process. So that's a nutshell what we do. Mm -hmm.
1: So I mean what we're talking about is how do we address crime after it's happened but we also want to talk about how do we prevent crime and I know as part of what you both advocate is how do we build bridges with communities so that we can prevent them from happening to begin with. And Eddie, I want to ask you, you've been impacted by the criminal legal system yourself and you've been really passionate about advocating for restorative justice. And as we all know, a lot of these social media videos have spotlighted perpetrators, you know, as being black and that's surfacing long-standing divisions between the communities. Why is addressing those rifts, maybe as important as all these things that Sarah just described?
3: For me, as someone that who has spent 21 years of my life incarcerated, I understand intimately about the need for public safety and personal safety. And then also that law enforcement and prisons and tougher policy to criminalize people of color is not the only solution. Had it not been for my family or the people in the community never giving up on me, I wouldn't have been sitting here with all of you today. And so I focus on restorative justice. It's not to try to deny accountability or trying to let people get away from the harm they have committed in our community, but really it's the ability to create healing opportunities for people so they can address the hurt that they have received as hurt people hurting other people. And then there's also an opportunity for us to prevent the people that who've been into criminal legal system, which normally is overrepresented by people of color and in indigenous people, that how they receive the necessary resources and cultural competence support that they need as they exit the system so they don't return. And that's why it's so important for us to build relationships with each other Right? And one of the things that we're talking about, uh, many of the tensions that we were able to address within the African American community and the Chinese community or the Asian American community, there's a lot of misunderstanding and implicit bias in both our communities. And so the way that I always try to look at in how my transformation I create the opportunity for me to humanize each other is to tap into my chi, and the chi that I'm talking about is culture, history, and identity. When we are able to understand where we came from, how we got here, and our values, and our connection to each other, then at the basic level, we are able to humanize each other.
1: And what does that look like in practice? Because Sarah, I know CYC was intentional about building a branch in the Bayview, The dominant racial groups there are Asian and black. What does violence prevention and mediation look like there in practice?
2: Well, I think first of all for the Bayview opening, it was actually about 12 years ago when Eddie and I were still like colleagues that working for CYC, and he definitely see it as a huge need in the Bayview area. At that time, one third of the population is Asian, and also one third is actually African American community residents. So when we first opened the office on the third street, it wasn't an easy task because we're going into a new neighborhood starting services. We have to really be around the table most of the time to show our genuine sincerity that we want to reach out the hand and build bridges between the Asian and the black community. The challenges is not only to actually establish that relationship with the leaders from the African-American community, but they also reach out to the youth and family to build that trust that we are also there for them. Our resources are also there for them. We believe that if there's no safety for one community, there's no safety for all communities. And we really have to work across the community. It takes more than 10 years. We've been there 12 years now, and we're still working on it. It's that how to really build that trust, how to keep that communication and transparency between the two communities very critical to build this relationship and that's something we're still working on so that we can really put in practice when we say we in solidarity. So some people
1: might be listening to this and like this sounds good but this sounds like a long-term strategy right and at the same time people are scared like you mentioned people are scared to leave their house, run errands, live their lives. So what about the short-term solutions with which many people have proposed as harsher prosecutions, more policing as this country is thinking about reform, and maybe we still want to move towards that, how do we place those strategies into play?
3: For us, whenever there's harm is happening in our community, uh, we need to really validate the suffering of the people. Right? And after validation, it's really trying to engage the survivor and victims of crime and the family members, as well as the community, so they can at least get the support that they need to Address uh, the trauma that they're experiencing, and then we talk about accountability. How do we make sure the people who did harm to be held accountable, right? In a way that we don't perpetuate this type of cycle of violence and then cycle of incarceration that perpetuates more harm, right? So that's where the short-term and long-term strategy has to be uh, collectively implemented in that way. And so uh, the way to do it again is that we have to start with ourselves if we are able to really look within ourselves and how we want to be treated and how we want to learn about the challenges and suffering that other people have, then I think uh, starting from that point, then we are able to really start engaging in that process of not so much of which side uh, do you believe uh, standing on and what solution that you feel is the best way, but really is trying to come together, right, to build the opportunity to have that dialogue and have that uh, courageous conversation, even though we may not agree on everything, but we, we all know that we are all focusing on personal and public safety.
1: Sarah, what do those conversations sound like? You serve on several groups with the city, knowing what you know about what's effective with violence mediation and prevention. When the issue of policing is on the table or things like that, what do those conversations sound like? How do you bring that knowledge onto the table?
2: So before I answer the question real quick, to just to add on what Eddie has saying, that it's also very important to have this dialogue with our young people. A lot of, actually, immigrant family, while they have the language barrier, really lack of understanding what is going on in America, what racism really means, our youth, our young leaders, they actually bring it home. And talking to their parents and also to their grandparents, and believe it or not, many of them actually come back to us actually crying that their parent or grandparents do not get it, do not understand it, and they just feel like they're being victimized, they're always the target so we really have to empower our young people why we are in such situation and what we can do to really mobilize the change so I think young people actually at the table and have this dialogue is very important also cross-culturally um, I think to answer your questions I think partly that's why we have the coalition for community safety and justice we understand we have to work very closely with the law enforcement agency even for us for victim support services majority of our client actually refer by the police department and also by the district attorneys because they realize there are gaps in the service and they could reach out to community and we can work together to make that happen. So we really can't do without the law enforcement's collaboration, but we also don't believe that's the only one approach. That's why we want to set up really a community model where we can bring community resources and also enhance the provide safe space to have a cross-cultural dialogue between the communities to really collectively work together towards a long-term solution and goal.
1: More of my live conversation with Sarah Wan and Eddie Zhang from last week's SF Next Solutions Conference after a quick break. SF Next is the Chronicle's initiative to find solutions to some of San Francisco's biggest problems. To learn more about the project, visit slash sfnext and listen to the SF Next podcast, Fixing Our City. This week's episode is also about the conference. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod, or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory—
1: We're back with more of my conversation with Sarah Wan, the director of San Francisco's Community Youth Center, and Eddie Zhang, the president and founder of the New Breath Foundation. This is a recorded conversation from a live panel I hosted at the SF Next conference. It's titled Public Safety and Race in the Asian American Experience. I want to talk about this moment a little bit because, you know, obviously San Francisco isn't alone in these challenges. Cities across the country have been trying to figure out how to solve this problem, and these have become very highly political issues, right? And when Chesa Boudin was recalled, a lot of people framed it as, oh, the city is rejecting progressive policies or reform. Asian Americans were credited for a lot of that effort in a lot of newsroom coverage. So for both of you, you know, what has this politicization sort of meant for the community, obviously it's thrust a lot of us into the spotlight, it's motivated a lot of action, but is there also a downside for how political this has gotten?
3: Well, that's the nature of uh, living in San Francisco and the politic is just, you know, it's the San Francisco politic, right? And so uh, put that aside, um, I, I wanna say that the whole recall uh, really uh, is triggered by something that is totally unexpected, right, which is called the Kung flu, the Wuhan virus, right, by the previous administration, and then the pandemic. Nobody expected that. So all those challenges, everything that is thrown at not just the DA's office, but all the departments, right, in the city of San Francisco, it just put it in perspective for us that there's so many gaps in our city when we're talking about preparedness to be able to address some of the unexpected challenges. Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, uh, refugees, we have been invisibilized. We have been lumped together as the model minorities that we don't have challenges. And that's why uh, mental health is so important uh, when when we're supporting the monolingual uh, survivors of crime and victims and their families because they look at that as a taboo already to begin with. And so when we're able to look at how this uh, recall, not just in San Francisco, right, but in other places, we're talking about how do we have criminal justice reform because we know incarcerating people has not worked and it will never work. So now, when we want to have progress, it doesn't mean that we don't want to hold people accountable. We're just saying that uh, we have to do it in a way that is responsible. We have to do it in a way that is representative to the people suffering. And so the way to do that is we have to listen. We have to listen and not just come in to exert our privileges. For many people, the downside would be the rollback of the criminal justice reform movement that has been engaged for decades. And then I just want to uh, follow up with that, uh, saying that anti-blackness really plays a big part into many of these spaces right in the San Francisco politics. This is a reality for the United States of America, not just for San Francisco. And so while we applaud for many of the young, Asian American young professionals and other uh, people wanting to step up and represent, I think they have a role in history, right? And they play a role in history. But then it's also about listening to people on the grassroots who have been doing the work for decades And how do we follow their lead, right? And also working with them and working together so we can have a really uh, authentic and responsible strategy for public safety.
1: And, And Sarah, I want you to weigh in on that too because like Eddie mentioned, you've been on the ground working on this for decades. Suddenly there's this moment, it's very political. What's been missing from that conversation because it's been so political?
2: I think I started the discussion really. This is not really something new to us uh, or new to our community. What is really different is that with the pandemic, and with all this like Kung Fu virus, all those like misperceptions, that's definitely a surge of like un. Provoted assault to our Asian seniors. That's something that I have not seen for my past 25 years in the community um, It definitely become very political But I think it's also necessary in order to really get to all kind of attentions and draw all the key stakeholder The community, the city department and come together and put in resources and really look for solutions I think what my experience in the past is that whenever there's a special like incident in our violence Happened in the Asian community Everybody come together And then try to find A quick fix solution Put a day. Oh let's do This violence Intervention program For one year Or for two years And everything Will be fine And then, then We'll come back To another cycle When something happened. We're always being Very reactive I really hope This time With this Polarization Really brought A lot of attention To our community And also resources That we can finally Really focus In a you know, longer Or long term Solutions to our Community to really and the violence.
1: And, and Sarah, since you have the ear of the city, you work with the city, I just want to note, Mayor Bree did invest $500,000 to keep investing in d- the direct services that you described. That's on top of multi-million dollars that they invested last year. Financial resources is one thing, but what else would you want to see the city doing? Or are you suggesting other ways that the city could
2: support the community at this time? I think of course, continued resources is also very important. Uh, funding has been focused a lot on victim services or like only our own community type of work. That's not enough funding in, in terms of like when we're mentioning about cross-cultural communities collaborations. So those resources are really not there. Um, I think that we need to advocate for more funding to really facilitate dialogues and also collaboration project to really build community for all. Um, I think the other thing is also we. I'm really as an executive director for organization, is that again, this support will only be this two years. Once the media died down, oh, we go back to on our own. There were a time in the past we've been doing school outreach, doing a lot of mediation at all high school in San Francisco, but then once the violence incident comes down a little bit, the program got pulled back. So that's what I really fear, that again, if things get a little bit better, we'll pull back, the service can no longer provide, even though we continue to provide a pro bono service, but it definitely hurt when we step back.
1: So there's definitely a momentum happening, um, and it's, you know, at times, even as an Asian American, I've been heartened to see so much attention on the community, but there have been times where it's felt a little scattered, and that's mostly because there's no singular Asian American experience, something that you both have alluded to. We're talking about different ethnic groups, different generations, different uh, immigration patterns, so everyone has different needs. But there is this momentum that's pulling us together in some way. And Eddie, where would you want to see that momentum go? Like, what is this opportunity for San Francisco in particular, even though a lot of cities are dealing with this?
3: Yeah, for, for San Francisco, I, I feel that we always have opportunities, right? And the way that with the opportunities, sometimes is misguided, more like a narcissistic in some ways. Even though we are saying that San Francisco is a melting pot, you know, it has all these immigrants and all the refugees and everybody... It's in the city of St. Francis and and building the city of St. Francis. But yet, uh, when we start working in isolation, in silos, then we are not going to be able to continue to have a safer community without people have to fight for resources, right? And so when we're fighting, when we have the scarcity mentality all the time, even we're one of the richest uh, cities in the world, and we still, with people of color community, we still have to figure out Like where are those resources gonna come from and why are we not getting the share of the uh, the resources? And I'll connect that to the the investment, the absolutely necessary investment in racial solidarity work. We have to do this, uh, we live and breathe that. Because we don't set aside our differences and check our privileges and walk out of that uh, mental prison that we put ourselves in. Then we are always gonna witness this type of problem happening, especially when in crisis moments. So the opportunity for us to really is to share resources and to be able to, again, build that community and then nurture the trust. And that's how we're able to at least make some significant, uh, uh, kind of uh, in addressing systemic racism, we can make some significant gains.
2: Well, you've done a great job here today. Thank you so much. Please give it up for them. Guys. You can I, just leave. I just
3: also want to thank Cecilia for putting this amazing panel together, thank you Cecilia.
1: That was Eddie Zhang from the New Breath Foundation, who was in conversation with me and Sarah Wan from the Community Youth Center. You also heard Jonathan Krim at the end, the project director of the Chronicle Initiative SF Next. He organized the conference that hosted the panel discussion you just listened to. SF Next is a project to find solutions to some of San Francisco's biggest problems. If you'd like to learn more about it, visit sfchronicle.com, slash Next to hear more about what happened at that conference including audience generated solutions to problems like housing and homelessness and other important discussions check out the latest episode from our sister chronicle podcast fixing our city you can find it wherever you listen to fit the mission thanks to gary baca Cynthia lopez laura Wenis, and the rest of the sf next team king kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening